0: First, I want to welcome to the program the Executive Director of the State Employees Association of North Carolina, Artis Watkins. Welcome. How are you today?
1: I'm doing very well. Thanks for having us.
0: Certainly, certainly. So, first off, tell us, what is the SEANC?
1: Okay, the State Employees Association of North Carolina is a voluntary membership association. We've been around for 76 years. And it's where state employees and retirees come together to try to advocate for themselves in the workplace and, frankly, a lot of the time advocate for the taxpayers by, uh, you know, being able to come to us and say things they don't feel free to come say to lawmakers because they don't want to risk their job. But they know there's things that need to be told for the public.
0: So is the uh, is the SEANC sort of like the NCAE in that it's affiliated with a union but doesn't have collective bargaining rights? So it's a union but not really a union.
1: That's uh, an interesting question, <laughs> um, and I'll tell you why it's a particularly interesting question. We are currently affiliated with the Service Employees International Union; have been since two thousand eight, mm-hmm. but our board unanimously voted in february to begin the process of disaffiliation that's a process we don't have anything you know there's we don't have anything against them it's just that we go about things differently and our board felt like it's you know it's time to to begin that process of disaffiliation
0: interesting is there any other i guess you probably couldn't tell me well maybe you could i'll ask is there, is there anybody is there another uh, union or organization that you're looking to affiliate
1: with no we've oh. been us for 76 years we're we're looking to
0: I got gotcha. you. All right. So uh, do us a favor, then. We've got two different versions of uh, the budget proposal that one came from the House, one came from the Senate. The governor's got his. Uh, but uh, with the Republican supermajorities, it's unlikely the governor's proposal is going to get a lot of traction, but maybe some elements of it make it through. So uh, give a comparison of the House and Senate versions as they are kind of hammering out uh, the differences between their proposals. What do you like? What don't you like?
1: I mean, obviously, where we usually end up is halfway between on on pay raise anyway. What the House and Senate each uh, put forth: the the House put seven and a half percent over two years, the Senate put five and a half. I mean, sorry, five over two years. Neither one of those things is what we're asking for because what we're dealing with in state government is a vacancy crisis. And some people don't like the word crisis, but when one out of every four positions is vacant providing services and safety to taxpayers, and 37% of the people who come to work in state government leave in the first year, that's a crisis, when in fact you're providing services and also safety to the public. So we believe neither one of those uh, was enough, and we're we're calling on the legislature to give a 5% raise in each year of the biennium and a $5,000 bonus That's retention bonus, you know, spread out over time to retain people. And the reason we're calling for that is this crisis is, um, it's not only that it's terrible from a customer service standpoint, from a public safety standpoint, but we're spending, according to Deloitte, a minimum of $500 million a year on this turnover. So that's not fiscally conservative and It doesn't make any sense so we're pushing instead of burning those dollar bills on people just walking right out the door invest in the workplace.
0: Right so explain uh, more of that 500 million figure what is that about?
1: So you know when you don't have enough people these are jobs again this isn't like um, it's a widget company and we can decide we can just scale back the number of widgets we have to provide the services and so if you're looking at prisons if you're looking at DHHS facilities or DOT getting, you know, making sure bridges get inspected, things that are critical to public safety. If you don't have enough state employees, you're going to have to contract that out. And, of course, that costs a lot more than it does to employ a state employee. But we're having to do what we have to do, whether it's pay for overtime, pay for contract work. There's a lot of, you know, constant interviewing, training, and then losing these folks And anybody who's run a business knows it costs a lot of money to train somebody just to lose them. Mm -hmm. Your your goal is, any CEO will tell you your goal is retain, you know, train folks and retain them so that you can provide the best to your customer that you can possibly do.
0: And I saw there was a report from the Office of State Human Resources that found applications for state jobs have fallen. Um, And so, and and, and then it highlights some of these vacancy rates. You mentioned um, public safety, but also in corrections, right? You're at like 27 percent vacancy, health and human services, like 26 percent. DOT is at 22 percent, state auditor at 21 percent, environmental quality 18 or 19 percent, military veterans affairs 17 percent, and Department of Administration 17 percent as well. And so uh, a couple of questions I had just on because I didn't I don't have access to all of the data. But is there are there are there elements here of working conditions? In other words, yes, pay I understand that particularly with high inflation. But with is there is there a role that working conditions play? Is there something about uh, centralized location of the jobs or are these like spread out all over the state? Is it a problem where people don't want to relocate to where the jobs are? I don't know up in Raleigh, and I have no idea yeah. if that's the case.
1: It's a great question. We have positions and problems, filling positions, all over the state. And, of course, in the private sector, you can try all kinds of things. Uh, We run a business here at Scenic. It's a nonprofit. And you can try all kinds of things, let people do hybrid work or any number of, of creative things other than pay. But if you're trying to staff a prison, you can't walk out. If you're a probation parole officer, you, you need to make sure you're doing, you know, you're checking in with everybody you're supposed to check in with. These are jobs you can't do from home. You can't not go to if there's a hurricane or a bad snowstorm or it's Christmas Day. You have to go. And so, you know, that's another thing about state employees generally and, and certainly our scenic members, they take the job very seriously. It's the state law pro- prohibits us from walking out or striking, but you wouldn't see that happen. It's not in the ethos of state employees. They they would not walk away from a prison or walk away after a, a hurricane from clearing the roads so people could get where they needed to go and get to safety. It just wouldn't happen. And so what we're saying is you want to retain that feeling of loyalty and also, again, save that five at minimum of five hundred million dollars a year. We're just flushing down the toilet in turnover by keeping folks.
0: Is it? Um, uh, is this a message that is being received at all by the budget writers uh, up in Raleigh?
1: Well, we'll find we'll find that out in the next <laughs> week. I, I think though, so. it's it's a tough one not to receive in in a lot of ways because again, you know the. The North Carolina economy I just saw something on Wallet Hub that ranked our economy the seventh strongest in the country and when you when you 've built such a strong economy and you 're a lawmaker and the state employees are your workforce, how in the world would you not want to provide the best you can to taxpayers because knocking down uh, the taxes they pay by one or two percentage points really isn't all that attractive to taxpayers if they're paying for 100% of services and getting 75%. And that's what's happening right now.
0: Have you considered maybe um, making all of the employees a governor? Because the governor's getting like a $40,000 raise in one of those budget (laughs) proposals.
1: Listen, (laughs) I think every employee should be paid commensurate, with what the market would, go, would, would give. I don't know what a governor goes for in the private <laughs> sector. I don't think they have them. But we do know what state jobs go for in the private sector, and they're about 15... We, you, know, you know that if you work for the state, you're not going to get rich. You're going to get paid about 15% less for the same job than you would in the private sector. That's, that's a decision people make when they go to work for the state. But when we've gotten to the point we are now we can't even get people to come into these jobs so and,
0: wasn't know, the we, tradeoff i'm sorry wasn't the trade-off always that you you take the lower pay but you get better uh uh benefits and job security
1: it yeah that was the trade off when when you had those benefits. The benefits have slowly eroded over time, and now, for instance, people who work, came to work for the state they knew. They had health care when they retired. That was a big benefit, and they would accept 15% less every single year, knowing at the finish line that was waiting. That's been taken away, so new hires don't have that. The health plan, the dependent coverage is completely out of reach. So people don't have incentive, and especially younger people are just saying, I'm not making that choice. But again, if you, if you look at retirees, they would always get a slight bump every year, a cost of living adjustment. And that shouldn't be the job of the General Assembly. The system was set up to have enough gains to give that bump. But that hasn't happened in so many years that what's happening now is employees who might have eight, nine years in are saying, I'm not going to stay, hoping that I would get that benefit because it's clearly not going to happen. So not giving retirees a COLA is actually affecting our ability to get people to come to work or stay at work.
0: Artis Watkins, the Executive Director of the State Employees Association of North Carolina. Anything else you want to add before we let you run?
1: Just listen. Taxpayers, call the General Assembly. Tell them, you know, 5% each of the next two years for state employees so that you can have full services is a good idea.
0: Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having us on.
0: Consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. The North Carolina Supreme Court has issued orders allowing attorneys from both the ACLU and the Institute for Justice to file briefs supporting Ace Speedway. A Speedway, remember them? They opened up during the pandemic, fought the governor, got shut down by Mandy. Just got it going on. In its legal fight against the state's top health official, State Health and Human Services Secretary Cody Kinsley, who was urging the high court to reverse the state court of appeals. A unanimous appellate panel ruled back in August of 2022 that the Speedway owners could pursue a lawsuit against Cody Kinsley. Over the forced shutdown of the Speedway in 2020 during the pandemic. But Pete, Kinsley didn't order them closed. Mandy Cohen did. Yeah, well, the lawsuit accused Mandy Cohen of shutting down the the Speedway for three months. But then she retired and Kinsley took over. So they're just going to keep suing whoever's in charge. The reason why they got shut down, they uh, the speed track claims, is that um, comments made by one of their owners against Governor Roy Cooper's COVID response, and that's what prompted the shutdown. The targeting of Ace Speedway. No other speedways were targeted. Just Ace. In answering the question, the court should articulate a standard for selective enforcement claims under Article One, Section Fourteen and Nineteen of our Constitution. That ensures meaningful accountability when state officials abuse their power. The ACLU lawyers argued. I got to tell you, like, this is fantastic. It's so refreshing. The ACLU on the side of actual liberties again. Isn't it nice? I mean, I'd like to think maybe we had a small thing to do with it. But with their former lobbyist running afoul of me and them, you know, and I mean, it's really just them. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, Where a, a claimant has pled facts indicating that a state official's enforcement decision was substantially motivated by protected speech. A selective enforcement claim should survive a motion to dismiss. What does that mean? It means that they have made this claim that their protected speech was retaliated against. And that was the motivation. The substantial motivation for the retaliation was the speech and that speech was protected. And the ACLU is now weighing in on the side of the Speedway in order to help make that argument, and that they were singled out for the retaliatory uh, action. So we shall see. No, uh, there's. They have not scheduled the uh, the oral arguments yet in this case, but I'll be following it. All right. Hey, real quick. It is estimated that more than six million Americans have Alzheimer's. It affected my family. My grandpa had it. New research and treatments are showing promise, but there's still a long way to go. So can you help me by supporting the Alzheimer's Association's Western Carolina chapter? The Family Dance Party Charlotte's on June 10th. From 1 o'clock until 5 o'clock, it's at the Roxbury Nightclub in Uptown Charlotte. Go to mix1079.com and get tickets, and come bust a move on the dance floor, or donate tickets to a family that's battling the disease. The Family Dance Party is presented by Jameson Realty. Again, if you can help us out, I appreciate it. Go to mix1079.com, and thank you for considering the request. And I want to welcome back to the program Dr. Andy Jackson. He is the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity at the John Locke Foundation. You can read his work at johnlocke.org. Andy, how are you?
2: Doing great. How are you doing? I
0: am doing all right. It's been a while since we last chatted. uh, And I saw your piece uh, about uh, ghosts who were voting, which I thought was pretty interesting. I was going to try to hold on to it until Halloween, but figured, now, I might as well get you on before October. So uh, what exactly are these ghosts who voted in the 2020 election?
2: Well, what we define ghosts as people that voted even though they did not in the end have valid registration. Um, what we had was folks that do same-day registration in North Carolina, which is what you do during the early voting period. Folks can register and vote on the same day. Um, they're supposed to present some kind of evidence that they live at the address that they say they do, like a bill or, or an old ID, and then Once they've done that process, they put in their ballot, and then the county board will try to verify that address through the normal means, just like anybody else that registers to vote. Well, in 2020, um, there were about 1,760 people who did same day registration, and the county boards could not verify that they actually live at that address. They, They sent them the notification, it came back as undeliverable, Um, And so those folks were taken out of the voter voter rolls, but despite that, the ballots associated with those registrations were still counted.
0: That seems problematic, Andy. I'm not an elections expert. That seems like it might be a bit of a problem, though.
2: Yeah, it it struck me as a problem, too, and it took me a long time to actually get the data. The first time I asked for the state board of elections for that information, they said they couldn't get it. Um, And I kind of accidentally asked Again, uh, about six months later, I had forgotten I had asked them the first time. I guess and I put in another public records request, and this time they had the data, um, so I was able to find out about the existence of those folks. And what the state board says is that uh, because they sent that first part of verification, the utility bill, which basically shows that they have some association with that address at some point in the past, you know, either thirty days ago or six months ago, with an ID. Um, that that qualifies for counting the vote, even though there's also evidence that they do not currently, at least at the time of voting, live at that address because the address couldn't be verified.
0: All right. You mentioned this is during early voting. Someone shows up. They're not registered. So they register to vote during the early voting period. Does this apply on Election Day?
2: No, it doesn't. You, You can't do same day registration on Election Day. Um, and part of the reason for that is, is that, um, and this is one of the little secrets, uh, if you vote early or you vote by mail, your ballot is retrievable. Uh, there's a number, uh, a code that they have on those ballots so that if for any reason they find out that, that you weren't actually supposed to vote or at least not vote at that location, they can go and pull that ballot out. You can't do that on election day. And there's just no way Uh, for the county board to verify your address, you know, if you're going to register on Election Day. There's just no time.
0: Okay, so um, this is all due to what you describe in your piece at johnlock.org. You call it a loophole in North Carolina law that allows ballots from unverified registrations to be counted. So what's uh, what's this loophole?
2: Well, the loophole is that uh, normally, if you register on election day or you uh, I'm sorry, you don't register on election day, but if you register at any other time except during the early voting uh, or same day registration, they go through a process that includes them sending a card to your address. And if as long as that card doesn't come back as undeliverable, then they will confirm uh, that you are registered to vote. So if if that you know if everything goes smoothly, then your registration is official for people doing same day registration. Their ballot is counted, even though their address is not confirmed through that process. So they're still taken out of the voter rolls. Um, It's just that that last ballot they submitted is still counted. Which I
0: feel the need to point this out. Also, something you just said, just to just to highlight. You said that they under normal circumstances, when you register to vote, they then send out a card. The Board of Elections will send a card to your address. And if it doesn't come back undeliverable, then they assume it's a legitimate registration, which to me is right. bonkers. <laughs> it's just nuts that we're relying on the postal service not sending something to be the, the verification.
2: Right. And well it it's we're kind of stuck. I mean, I guess without doing something like that, you're having to people, you know, go manually look at folks' houses and knock on doors or whatnot. But this is this is the system that we have. But people that do this same day registration uh, 1,700 of those folks failed to even clear that hurdle, uh. So it's it's a real problem.
0: Yeah, you also have a quote here in the law: in the event that the county board of elections cannot verify the address, your voter registration application will be denied, and your absentee vote may be subject to challenge. Shouldn't that, I don't know, shouldn't that uh, get at, get us at a some uh, some sort of an enforcement mechanism?
2: Um, well, here's the problem with that, and this is another thing I got I, when I contacted the State Board of Elections. Um, you have to have individualized knowledge uh, in order to make a challenge. So you ha- actually have to know that somebody had registered to vote and that their, their ballot or their registration was not verified by the county board. Now, nobody has that. I mean, I had to ask twice, two years after the 2020 election, just to get the data on the numbers, much less the people involved. So it's, it's actually an impossible piece of information to get. So all of those 1,700 are virtually unchallengeable.
0: Well, it's not like it was a close election,
2: right? <laughs> no, Well, unless you're looking at the North Carolina State Supreme Court Chief Justice race, that was 401 votes. Uh, and, you know, we, you know, we all, all, almost always have one or two really close elections that are decided by, say, 10,000 or less votes. Uh, so yeah, this could this small amount could make the difference in some statewide elections periodically.
0: Well, and I, I also saw in your piece here that you mentioned uh, uh, work that the Voter Integrity Project did, Jay Delancey over there years ago in two thousand eight. And I knew this this story sounded familiar, or not the story, but the the information sounded familiar because they had done work on this fifteen years ago. This is not some sort of a new problem. But is there a way now to to fix it?
2: Well, there is a there is a way that we have now. Uh, it's actually in this new big election bill that got passed, which is to make um, the same day registration uh, ballots provisional until the address is verified. Now, uh, we had about ninety six thousand same day registrations in twenty twenty, so uh, through the normal process, they would have been made you know in back into regular ballots. Uh, you know, uh, about ninety four thousand of those. And then those other 17 would remain provisional, and then it would be up to the county boards to try to determine if those uh, registrations were actually valid. Now, the problem, of course, is they're going to have to reach out to the same address that it got returned as undeliverable before.
0: Right. But the key there is that the provisionals are not automatically counted.
2: No, they're not automatically counted until the address is verified one way or another. Right. Right. Which seems like a
0: pretty good way to safeguard, somewhat, against a bunch of people doing same-day registration vote fraud. Seems like it. Um,
2: yeah, it, it, I think it would be a step in the right direction.
0: All right, so you mentioned this uh, this big bill, although I'm not sure you realize it's not just a big bill, Andy. It's, it's a jumbo jet of uh, election suppression. Jumbo jet is the branding effort underway. I'm not really sure how they arrived at that. Jumbo Jet description, but that is definitely the talking point that's making the rounds. Uh, so, uh, can you stick around and we will go over some of the details in the Jumbo Jet bill? Sure. All right. Andy Jackson, he's the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity at the John Locke Foundation. You can read his work at johnlocke.org. Radio communications, herbal remedies, home defense, fermenting vegetables, all sorts of stuff. This is what Carolina Readiness Supply does. For beginners all the way to the most experienced preppers, Carolina Readiness Supply can help. Get your tickets now at com. That's com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? My guest is Dr. Andy Jackson. He is the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity at the John Locke Foundation, and we're talking about uh, ghosts and jumbo jets and uh, some election law. So uh, let's talk about this uh, Senate Bill 747 because it's a jumbo jet, don't you see? Okay, um, that's what the de- <laughs> that's what the Democrats are branding it as because it's it's big, I guess, and it has lots of stuff in there, and these are all terrible provisions. So let's go through uh, uh, what the terrible provisions are. Namely, that people are going to have to what get their absentee ballots into the board of elections by election day. I'm outraged. Uh oh, Andy, are you there? Oh yes, I am. Oh, there you
2: okay. go. All right. Okay, good. I feel much better now.
0: All right. Uh, <laughs> All right. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, so the first provision we've got here is the. Um, is the absentee ballots and the, the deadline. And as I understand it, the deadline for absentee ballots has never been changed before in North Carolina history. Is that accurate?
2: Uh, yeah, that's actually really accurate, except it got changed 10 years ago. Um, and so there, it was due on Election Day, then they've made it three days after Election Day, and now they're just going to move it back to Election Day again. Um, and this is what a majority of states already do, including some of your all-male states, like Colorado, so this is nothing weird. It helps, aside from any concerns about uh, election integrity, this also helps out with the administration, because we saw last time around, we had incidences where uh, you had to depend on uh, the, I think this was in Wake County where they ended up. Uh, one of the postal workers had to notify that they picked the wrong date on the envelope, so they had to come back and testify. To the county board that, in fact, well, this was actually valid on election day. We had a lot of fights about when was a ballot in the mail stream. There were hearings in a lot of counties in that aforementioned state Supreme Court chief justice race where they were trying to say, well, if it came in the day after, surely they mailed it on time, even if they didn't have the right barcode on it. So this clears up a whole bunch of that administrative confusion, uh, and it helps people, you know, basically know the results a little bit earlier.
0: Well, you realize, though, that Having more confusion allows for more opportunities for, for lawsuits, litigation, challenging, and then that gives uh, candidates a potential to, quote, win by getting ballots tossed or included, right? I mean, that, and that's really the game.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, when you have more complicated rules that are harder to follow— it can be kind of a, a litigant employment policy. So it makes <laughs> folks like Mark Elias and some of these other election lawyers very happy if they have kind of rules they can fight through uh, and get paid.
0: Right. Yes. The lawyers always win. That's uh, rule number one. So uh, what what of the uh, the Zuckbuck uh, provision?
2: Well, the Zuck, it would basically ban private funding of elected administration. This is something that's already in the budget. I imagine if it gets, if this, Gets past the veto, then uh, they'll take it out of the budget. But this this would prevent this kind of private funding of elections, not just from the Zuckerberg of the world, but stuff like the Arnold Schwarzenegger Foundation. There were a few others, and this would leave gov- you know the government administration of elections to be funded only by government entities. Um,
0: and we also and we saw when um, analyzed that uh, a lot of the money that these organizations were pumping into our system were going into. Democrat-leaning precincts and, and counties, uh, which then, of course, raises the specter that they were using it to get out the vote, not to actually administer elections, right?
2: Well, well it, that's what we saw. There was a slight de- increase in turnout uh, for the counties that received those Zuckbucks, but it disproportionately was Democratic turnout. Um, if you if you just looked at counties, for example, if you just looked at counties that took Zuckbucks. And just counted those votes, uh, Joe Biden would be uh, would have been elected from North Carolina. We yeah. actually had uh, in the state attorney general race, the, there was no difference in the vote for the Republican candidate. But Mark Stein, the Democrat, had about a three percent increase in votes for him compared from in a comparable race from 2016. And, and so that difference there was enough for him to win that race. Yeah.
0: Well, that's no surprise why he wants to keep it in place then. Um, wh- a couple other provisions. Uh, we want to uh, have Superior Court clerks notify state election officials of the names of the people disqualified from jury duty because they're not citizens. Why is that important?
2: Well, because only citizens are allowed to vote by law in North Carolina. And this is it's a weird one because Governor Cooper actually vetoed this uh, bill uh, last time around. Um, And so I guess he doesn't mind if people that are not citizens can register and vote in North Carolina.
0: Right. So they go in there and they're like, oh, you can't seat me on jury duty. I'm disqualified because I'm not a citizen. But now you don't want that information to be relayed to the elections office for some reason.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I can't imagine why. (laughs) Uh,
0: Permit public inspection of ballots at weekly county election board meetings.
2: Now, I will say I think this is something that we're going to see amended because you can't actually, you don't want people looking at ballots before Election Day. Uh, Now, these ballots should be able to be open to public inspection after Election Day. But, you know, if you let people see ballots, even if they don't know who's associated with the ballot, you're basically allowing people to keep a running tally of votes you know before Election Day. So I think that may have been a typo because the title actually talks about absentee ballot container envelopes. And that is something that should definitely be open for public inspection as those come in. So that way uh, observers and other citizens can verify themselves whether or not they followed all the proper process that they were properly witnessed and so forth.
0: There you go. Dr. Andy Jackson, the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity, John Locke Foundation. You can read his work, johnlocke.org, also at carolinajournal.com for all the details on the big jumbo jet Senate Bill 747. Andy, thanks, buddy. Good to talk with you again.
2: Always a pleasure. All
0: right, take care. That's Andy Jackson. we got some more details on this. We also have Democrats running a bill to try to get some of that money back from Trisha Coffin.